Okay, Black Bart, now you get yours. I shot my eye out. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. You'll shoot your eye out. Oh, You'll shoot your eye out. Ralphie, you be careful out there. Don't shoot your eye out. She hadn't seen. She didn't know. My eyes are right. The BB must have hit my glasses. My glasses? Oh, no, where are my glasses? Few things brought such swift and terrible retribution on a kid as a pair of busted glasses. and hits me in the eye. It would work. It had to work. Quickly, I whipped up some tears. Ralphie? What's the matter, honey? What happened? What is it? Let me see that. What there is was it? a icicle, and, and, and it fell off the garage, and it hole. hit me. Come on, Beltway Park. Doesn't matter if you're at the South Campus, North Campus, online family, let's be honest this morning. How many of you tried to somehow scam your parents when you were a kid? Hands up right now. The rest of you are lying at Christmas. That's a bad time to be doing it. Now, I'm telling you, I did it a lot, man. I was a conniving little dude. It never works out like that on the video, does it? The ruse of rebellion rarely works when you're a kid. But let's be honest enough to say that in our society, there are times when disobedience, rebellion is like actually funny. I, I'm enjoying the stage of life now called grandparenthood. It was awesome. When I had my first grandkid, I made a vow, and that vow, not vow, really, I just made a commitment. That commitment was to be that I wasn't going to do diapers and I wasn't going to say no. I am 99% on the diapers, man. I think I've changed two diapers over four kids, uh, grandkids and such. I think I traumatized the two when I changed them enough that my kids don't want me messing with it anymore. Um, but when it comes to discipline, um, my adult children actually set me down and said, Dad, you gotta, you gotta help us out here. Kids live in town, they're around you a lot. We need your help. You, 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 got, you gotta join in with the discipline because it's making it very hard to be a parent if you don't do it. Now, my first thought was, stinks to be you. I'm Mac. I'm gonna do what I want. But then I had the conviction of the Spirit. You know how the Spirit works in that kind of stuff? He told me it's really not good for your grandkids as much as you're around you never to say no. So I gave in and I had to rediscover a reality. And part of the reality, when you discipline a preschooler, the hardest part of disciplining a preschooler is not laughing. Because a lot of what they're doing is absolutely hilarious. But it's rebellion and you have to deal with it. You guys know what I'm saying? So I get 
that in our society there's video clips like this. There's other times when rebellion and disobedience are really, really funny. It's really, really cute when they're in preschool, when they're in early elementary. But it ceases to be funny the older they get. Why? Because good parents know a reality. We know that obedience leads to good things in life. Now, I understand that sometimes even good parents um, require kids to obey rules that are unfair or haven't been thought through and stuff like that. But even then, it's actually good for them because there's going to be a day in your adulthood when you have to submit to someone or something to which you don't agree. You know what I'm saying? We as parents, we know the value of obedience for our kids then why is it that as we move into adulthood, we begin to struggle with that word? Let's be honest. As soon as I mention the idea of obey, we begin to struggle because as adults in our society, when we hear obey, we think of subjugate. We think of oppression. But it's not what the scripture tells us. It says in the um, Hebrew letter that although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. Now, this is a loaded verse. I don't have time to unpack it all. Just hear me. When Jesus was on the earth, when he became human, what we celebrate as Christmas and then moving into the resurrection of Easter, when Jesus was on this earth, he was both fully God and he was fully man. But I am confident, I don't have time to back it up, but I'm confident that when Jesus was here, he did not live out of his divinity. He lived as a human. He lived exactly like you and I are supposed to live. He lived the way humans were designed to live. He modeled for us the way we're to live life. And this says that although Jesus was a son, he learned the value of obedience, even though it was difficult. Jesus' life on earth shouts to you and I that obedience, even when it's tough, is worth it. Jesus lived a life, not just of obedience, but a life of extravagant obedience to the level of all the humans that ever existed. Jesus and Jesus alone was perfect. And being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Catch that. There's not a one of us who are engaging today that don't want eternal salvation. We don't know the totality of all that means, but something inside of it goes, yes, I want to be a part of this reality. I want it to become more and more true in my life. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus modeled the way we're to live this thing called life. And this journey began not when Jesus was an adult. It actually began way back when he was a kid. Luke's gospel ends its section on what we would call the Christmas story, the origins of Jesus at the end of chapter two. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year to the Feast of Passover. Notice, every year. It takes about two and a half hours to three hours in a vehicle to get from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It would have taken them three or four days each way walking, and they did that every year. Listen to me, these people were all in on their faith. When Jesus was 12 years old, so I understand this wasn't technically the Christmas story, but again, Luke counts it in the origins of Jesus' life. They, the family, went up to, uh, according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group somewhere, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and their acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, everyone who is a parent right now is sitting all stoic, 
you got your spiritual face on, everything's real great, but inside there is a rejoicing going on. Because what every parent is thinking is this. Inside you're going, whoo, I'm not the only one who ever lost my kid. Mary and Joseph, the Mary and Joseph didn't just lose a kid, they lost the Son of God. They lost Jesus. And we're thinking pretty good about our parenting right now, right? Come on. I remember decades ago when my now very adult daughter was in early elementary, we had left our small group. And I got a call right when we got to the house from Danny Stevens, our small group leader at the time. And he goes, Pastor, did you forget anything when you left group tonight? And I couldn't think of a thing. I thought maybe the dude thought I was supposed to kiss him or tell him I love him, which I'm not gonna do because I'm a dude, right? I mean, I gave him a hug, two pats out. That's what men do. You gotta have somebody in your family die to give, me a, give you a hug longer than two pats, okay? It's in the man code. I had done everything just right. And after I told him, I said, Danny, I don't know of anything that I forgot. He said, well... Where's Rebecca? I said, her mama's got her. And then her mama walked in. No, Rebecca. We had done left our daughter at the Stevens house, and she was in the bedroom, no care in the world. Danny and Beverly were just kind of going through stuff, and there she was just playing, having a great old time. In our defense, though we left her, I think within a day, it would have taken us less than a day to figure out that we somehow had left her. You know what I'm saying? Come on, we're all feeling pretty good about our parenting after Mary and Joseph left their kid for an entire day. Just a side question. Do you think Mary and Joseph had a fight on the way back to Jerusalem? <laughs> the text does not say, but trust me, they did. It was a doozy of a fight. The story continues. After three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. But he also gave answers. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to Jesus, oh, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That would be an understatement after three days. And he said to them, why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was off his obviously exceptionally insightful to the word of God. Again, I, I think he lived completely as a human, but he had an insight into scripture, a wisdom about scripture, that he was talking to the PhD theologians of his day, and they were astonished at the way he was engaging. So knowing this level of knowledge he had about scripture, the next verse is utterly amazing to me. And Jesus went down. You go down from Jerusalem always in the Bible, so anytime they leave Jerusalem, they go down. They went down with his parents, and came to Nazareth, and Jesus was submissive to them. Honesty time. When you were younger, some of us have to go way back in our memory, like when you were in the teenage years, did you ever think you knew more than your parents did? Come on now. So you parents who have teenagers right now, you're just shaking their heads right now going, you don't even know what we're going through right now. When, when I was a teenager, 16 or 17 years old, I'm telling you, we had, I had a rough time with my dad. Like, we weren't jihad at all. We were having very loud arguments very rarely in life. I mean, very often in life, and it was all my fault. 
Yeah, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 13, began preaching when I was 15 years old, but I was so immature in so many ways. Still growing in that, but really at that time, very immature. Had a lot of insecurities, but I was masking my uh, insecurities with a kind of an arrogance and a pride. My identity was not in Jesus, as we talked about earlier this fall, but it was actually in my performance, how well I was doing the Christian life. And in my opinion, I was doing the Christian life better than most people. I was especially doing it better than my dad because my dad wasn't following Jesus at all. He wasn't a Jesus follower. He wasn't going to church. He wasn't preaching like I was. I had an older brother who has publicly shared that he had all sorts of troubles with drugs and alcohol, and he was wreaking havoc in our household, but I wasn't doing that. Man, I was seeking to live sexually pure. I wasn't partying with my friends. I was doing all the right stuff. I was being, in my mind, this great Christian because I was a great Christian, and I didn't think my dad was a great Christian. He didn't have the right to tell me what to do. I knew more than him. Now, some of you who are pretty astute in the scripture, you're thinking right now, but well, David, doesn't that Bible say something about honoring your father and your mother? I know. I didn't say I was a good Christian. I said I thought I was a good Christian, which, by the way, is pride, the foundational sin that God opposes, right? I bet every young person has wrestled with thinking they knew more than their parents. Jesus did. Jesus' parents couldn't go to the temple and talk scripture with the theologians of the day. He knew more about the word of God than they knew. And when it came to actually living out the things of the word of God, he did better. The scripture says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one Jesus who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was what? Without sin, even as a 12-year-old, Jesus had never sinned. Jesus knew more about the ways of God than Joseph and Mary, and he actually did the ways of God more than Joseph and Mary. Yet, Jesus went down to Nazareth, came to this home, and was submissive to them. And then the next verse, and Jesus increased. Come on, who wants increase in their life right now? Put your hands up. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Isn't it interesting? The text connects Jesus growing in wisdom and favor, increase in wisdom, favor, and stature before God and man to his life of submission. And we all get really quiet, don't we? Because it's like it doesn't compute in our brains, especially as Americans. Jesus modeled the way we're supposed to live this thing called life. The way we can and the way we should live this thing called life. And Jesus' life from the very beginning shouts to you and I that extravagant obedience leads to abundant life. And I feel the struggle going on inside of us right now. Listen to me, I I get it. See, we, as followers of Jesus, we have this tendency to go to extremes when it comes to this word obey, if we're not careful. One extreme we go into is we actually think that because of the way I do things and don't do things, that somehow I earn my salvation before God. It's a a legalism, a self-righteousness that says somehow I have gained. It's what I had as a young man, and it turns into a pride in life. Let me be clear. The Bible states that we cannot do enough right things. We can't do enough good things to be right with God. If we could do enough good things, avoid doing enough bad things, Jesus didn't need to come, did he? 
He would have just given us the rules and we live by them. The better you do, the more right you are with God. And if you don't do it right enough, well, you're not right with God. But we couldn't do that. See, there's this amazing thing called grace. For it is by grace. Somebody shout grace. Grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that none of us can boast. Every other religion of the world is about doing enough things to be right with God. Not Christianity. Being a follower of Jesus is not about doing enough good things, earning things before God, but receiving what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That is the entire message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we could not do enough things, and God did for us in Jesus what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus suffered and died in our place. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and he did this, listen to me, because the extravagance of his heart is greater than anything we can ever know. It's what we talked about last week. And I'll just tell you, if you missed last week, it was a decent sermon. It is one that you probably ought to go. I just encourage you on the podcast, the website, something I think would be a good investment of your time. The way we become right with God is to receive the love of God. And when you receive the love of God, you commit to love him in return. See, what some of us can do is we can go from this legalism trying to earn my salvation by doing enough good things, about avoiding the bad things. And we can swing the pendulum And we can think, well, when I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works, then it doesn't matter what I do in life. It doesn't matter if I obey. But that's not true either. The way we receive God's love is to love him in return. In essence, we give our lives over to him. So salvation is this paradoxal tension that exists. Salvation is a paradox. It says it is a free gift, but it costs you and I everything. We cannot earn what Jesus did for us. We receive it, but to receive it, we give up everything to follow him, to live life the way he lived life. And the way Jesus lived life on this earth is he submitted to his parents, he submitted to his heavenly father, and he loved his heavenly father with all he had. So it should not shock us when Jesus says, I do as the father has commanded me. So he went from submission to parents to a submission to his heavenly father. Why? So that the world may know that I Love the Father. Jesus connected obedience and love. Why? When we grab hold of the extravagance of God's love, what we celebrate during this season that the creator of all the complexities of the universe became human. He came to a manger lived a sinless life and would sacrifice himself so that we could be right with him, then we know that we can trust him more than anyone or anything in life. When we have a revelation of the extravagance of God's love, it leads to extravagance obedience because we know God would never command something that wasn't for our good. That is what Jesus' life shows to you and I. Jesus did this great sermon. I challenge you to read it this week. We, in light of obedience in our lives, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it'll take you about 15 to 18 minutes to read. Called the Sermon on the Mount. Here was his conclusion. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. It's not enough to know them. Everyone who lives by them, who obeys them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. But 
everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, does not do them, will be like a fool who built his house on the sand. Knowing that rains are going to come, knowing that winds are going to blow, knowing that floods are going to rise, still built their house on the sand, and that house fell. And great was the crash of that house. Let me ask, do you hear the heart of Jesus in this? See, what, what most of us probably are hearing right now is a sense of guilt, a sense of condemnation. I'm not doing enough. I'm not being enough. That's not the heart of Jesus. Romans says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount laid out his ways and with a heart is saying, I, I, I want you to have a house. I want your life to be like a house. That though the world is tough, winds beat against it. Storms blow around it. The realities of life seem to push against it. It does not fall. Because as he says in the Gospel of Luke, that wise person has dug down to the bedrock and put his house down deep. He says, that's the kind of life I want you to have. That's why I came. I came so that you could have a life that is solid and strong and does not crash. And that kind of life comes as we strive, not perfectly, but we at least have an attitude that we're going to do that which the Father commands us to do. Extravagant obedience leads to abundant life. For this is love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commands are not burdensome. Now, please don't mishear that. It doesn't mean they're not going to be challenging. It doesn't mean they're not going to cause us to struggle. It doesn't mean they're not going to stretch us in life. But they're not burdensome. Why? Because the Father would never command anything of us that's not for our good. If he, the creator, would become like one in the manger, he'd become human and live the sinless life and offer himself as a sacrifice to us. What makes us think that anything that he would ask of us would not be for our good? Jesus came so that we could be born again so that we could start over in life and no longer live under the mastery of sin. We could live under the lordship of our heavenly father and we would have a power to do that which he commands us to do, commands that are for our good because he wants us to have abundant life. Listen to me, when we struggle to obey, and I would ask you if you struggle to obey, but we'd all have to raise our hands, right? And then I'd catch some of you lying again because you're not gonna raise your hand and stuff like that. When we struggle to obey in life, it means we need a greater revelation of God's love. Think about it. When we struggle to obey, pick anything. It, do, it doesn't matter the area. It doesn't matter the command. It, no. When we struggle to obey anything that God says we need to do or don't need to do, it means we are struggling to believe obedience in that area would lead to abundant life. It means we are fearful that God's really holding out on us, that God doesn't love us enough to tell us what is best, to guide us in the way that's really life. Pick the area, pick money. When we refuse to be generous the way God calls us to be generous in his word, maybe by his impressions, then it means we are fearful that God's holding out on us in life, that he's really not going to provide everything that we need in this life. If we struggle to walk in sexual purity, sexual purity embraces the heart God has behind the beauty of something called sex, and he gives sex as a gift to create the physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness between a man and a woman only in the covenant of marriage. When we do anything outside of that, pick the area. 
whether it's hooking up or pornography or whatever the case may be, it says that we believe unbounded sex will provide more abundance in life than what our Heavenly Father has for us. When we refuse to serve in the areas that God calls us to serve, then we are saying that if I give of my time and my abilities, I don't believe that God's gonna give back to me in abundance as he says he will. You see, when we struggle to obey, we need to grab hold of the Father's heart in that area once again. Obedience is evidence of our love for the Father and our trust of the grandness of his heart. And when we struggle, I don't think what we need to do is just beat ourselves up. What we need to do is say, Father, I need to know your love more. Would you give me power together with all the saints to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is your love and to know this love? Because I apparently don't know it well enough because I don't trust you in this area. Jesus said it plainly. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, that's the one who loves me. That's the one who's responded to me the way it needs to be. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him. And the one who obeys, I will show myself to him. Extravagance. Extravagant obedience leads to abundant life. Please, please listen to me. Are you hearing my heart? I am utterly, absolutely confident that what I'm telling you is biblically true. It, it's there. There is, there is really no way to debate what I'm saying from a biblical standpoint. Extravagance obedience leads to abundant life. But I'll be really honest with you. I still struggle. I do. I mean, there's things that I, I think I know the word calls me to step into. What really happens most of the time is there are commands in the Bible. One of the reasons we avoid the Bible, people say, I don't understand the Bible, so I don't read it. I really don't think that's the case. I think we're concerned about what we do understand. Because once I understand what I do understand, I'm responsible for what I understand. And that's why we struggle. I struggle. Because what happens is there are commands, but then the Spirit of God impresses upon us specific ways we're supposed to live out those commands. And there's some specifics in my life, I'll just be honest, I, I've struggled with. I've struggled in some areas that God called me to obey and some areas he called me to withhold myself and obey. Every one of us struggles. Hear me, it's all of us. But we can't quit the struggle. I'm telling you, we can't minimize the importance of obedience. Something needs to shift in our head. We have to have a change of our thinking that obedience doesn't mean subjugate. It doesn't mean to oppress. It actually is the source that unlocks life for you and I. Extravagant obedience. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, I do that which the Father has commanded me to do so that everyone will know this. I love him. I love him with everything I have, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. I love him, and the world can see it by the way I live my life. That's what I want to be true of me. That's what Jesus wants us to be true. We cannot quit striving to understand and grasp hold of the importance of obedience. We need to once again grab hold of the value, listen to me, of obedience. Even though Jesus was a son, he learned the value of obedience when he obeyed even when things got tough. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Do you know that's why we exist as a church? When it really comes down to it, we exist as a church to help each other take our next steps with Jesus. Well, a next step with Jesus is almost always an act of obedience. It is something the Lord is showing us that we need to do in light of his word. Hebrews 10 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards what? 
Love and good deeds, all action. Not giving up meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. How are we to encourage each other? We encourage each other to see the grandness of God's heart. That there is nothing more extravagant than God's heart for humanity. As we see that, you know what it does? God's kindness, the scripture says, leads us to repentance. It leads us to change and actually walk in places of obedience. And we learn that abundant life actually comes as we live lives of extravagant obedience. That is why we do what we do together as a church. Everything we do as a church is about those things. You can pick anything, and it all comes down to that. I just picked the things that we wanted to talk to you about this week. And I can tell you they're connected to this. Like, we have a thing called church membership. It's a membership process. And I get asked regularly all the time, why do I need to be a member of a church? Do I need to be a member of a church to be saved? No. Then why do I need to be a member? To be honest, membership only matters if you want to go on mission. It's pure and simple. We, as a church, want to help as many people as possible know the love of Jesus Christ. Through our campuses this weekend, I forget the number of people, 25, 30 people were baptized this weekend professing their love for Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see happen. But I want to see it happen not dozens of times, but hundreds of times, if not thousands of times over. I want to see entire days, not just entire services, but entire days where all we're doing is baptizing people. And they're making confession after confession of Jesus Christ. We want to give people the greatest opportunity possible to know that there's hope to be found in this life. There's peace that you can have despite the situations. There's joy that are not contingent upon the circumstances that what our heart aches for actually can be found. I want people to have that opportunity. That's why we exist. We want to make it hard to go to hell in the big country. We want people to know his love. The way that happens is we do things together. We serve together. We can't hire enough staff to do that. What we do on the weekend takes thousands. We need thousands of people on mission. Why do we need membership? Membership just gets us on the same page. It just says this is, this is who we are. This is how we're moving forward. We get on the same page. In essence, membership is the way you really join the team. And there's many of us that need to join the team. That's why we do membership. You can do that, amazingly enough, tomorrow night. Now, I only picked this because we had it tomorrow night. You can go to beltway.org slash growth track, sign up. We got stuff for your kids. That's why you be a part of it. That's why we do that. Our mission together, showing the love of God to our world, is why we do Christmas Eve the way we do it. Do you know that at Christmas Eve we'll have 35 to 50% more people show up at Christmas Eve service than we'll have on an average weekend? Many of them do not know Jesus. Many of them are being drugged there by family members. They came to visit, and I got to go to church. I don't care. I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than people's motivations. They get a chance to hear the word of God and know the love of God to do that. We have great opportunity with that. To do Christmas Eve, we have to have people who will help serve. It's just pure and simple. I told you it takes hundreds if not thousands on a normal weekend. Well, all of our serve team can't be here at all those services. We have family. We need people who will just sign up one time, do one weekend to help us out. The scripture commands it. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Who wants some freedom in life? We all do. We were called to live free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, what? Serve one another in love. We are commanded. Now, the places that we regularly serve, they're going to vary based upon the gifts and the, uh, the callings that God has on our lives. But a one-off service on a weekend, a Christmas Eve, come on, we can do anything for one time, right? We can serve in one area to help out the mission of the church. We need you. 
so that we can show the love of Jesus to people. So there's an insert in your bulletin. Fill it out. Take it to the guest services at either of our physical campuses. Online will tell you there. Uh, we'll tell you how to do that. Come join. Be part of the team. That's why we do it. And all of us can invite somebody to attend. All of us can invite somebody to join us. You are where you are in this world because God has a purpose to use you there. You're not at your job by accident. You're not in your neighborhood by accident. Your kids are not on their little league teams or ball teams or whatever by accident. I'm gonna tell you in the long run what matters for eternity is not how successful you are at your job. It doesn't matter what title you might obtain. It doesn't matter all sorts of things. It doesn't matter how your kid does in sports. What's going to last for eternity are the people that are in that world. And God has put us there so that we can give a chance to show the love of God to them in various ways. There's lots of ways we can do that. But one of the ways we can do that, it's just real simple, invite them to Christmas Eve. It's a simple act that we have. Scripture says, you can see right there the invite, therefore go and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One way we can obey that command. It's a command. Come on, what would it be like if somehow God took a simple invitation and changed the destiny of a family? Because I said yes to invite them to a Christmas Eve service. Is that abundant life? That's what I want. In the chair back in front of you, is a Christmas Eve invite. Right now, everybody's reaching down and picking up one. Okay, 10 of us are reaching down and picking up one. I know the North Campus, I know y'all are all doing it right now. Thank you, North Campus, for that. South Campus is moving right now. I just want you to take one. And as you take up the one, here's been my prayer. As soon as you picked up that one, you had a name. And all you gotta do is invite. You don't, you don't have to worry about whether they say yes or no. Not your job. Not your job to decide whether they know Jesus or don't know Jesus. That's between them and God. We just give opportunity. Would you take one and invite somebody? Now, some of you are saying, hey, I got more than one person invited. You take more than one then. But there's one person in your world that needs the opportunity to know the love of Jesus Christ. We have services on like Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. There's opportunity for all sorts of people to come that we can go and make disciples. Are you hearing me? We throw out this word obey, and we mishear it. Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was what? We're struggling with the word, aren't we? Why are we struggling with a word that was so core to Jesus? Something needs to change in the way we think. I love our nation, and I love so many facets of our nation, but there's so many things awry in the philosophy of our nation. And one of them is this rampant individualism that I'm gonna do what I wanna do when I wanna do it. We lift up old Frankie Sinatra, I'll do it my way. There's a way that seems right to a human, but the end of it therefore leads to death. You can do it your way and you have hell to pay. Or we can do life the way God calls us to. We were never designed to do it my way. From the beginning, we see it in Adam and Eve. They walked with him and talked with him in the garden. 
Life was always meant to be lived in relationship with God, staying in step with Him, always dependent upon Him. Jesus, though He knew better than His parents, was more spiritual than His parents. He went down with His parents, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And Jesus increased. There's increase for your life. There's increase in wisdom. There's increase in favor. There's increase in stature. But it's going to come as we have a shift in our mind and we grab hold of again, once again, the value of obedience. Instead of taking on this thing, how little can I get away with? We're going to open ourselves up to the Father and go, Father, I love you so much. And you love me so much. I'm amazed at your love. And you show me the way I'm supposed to do this thing called life. Show me more of your ways. Give me a power to live by your ways more than I ever have. Let me be one who not just obeys, but let me be extravagant. I'm going to obey your word, oh God, so that everyone around me will know I love you. That's what I want. Let's bow our heads. Let's ask the Father to do a work. Come on. Don't, Don't hear. I just, I... I cast down this false sense of guilt and shame when it comes to the word obedience. None of us have lived up to the level of obedience of Jesus. I get it. We all have room to grow. But I declare over us right now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not going to be condemned. The Spirit of God brings a matter of conviction because he loves us so much and just wants us to move back to the path that leads to life. We need grace to hear, to trust God's heart, to know the extravagance of his heart, to obey when we don't necessarily understand what the outcome's gonna be, to obey when it's challenging, to obey when it's uncomfortable. Would you just ask the Father for that kind of heart? Father, I also wanna trust your heart, the grandness of your heart, that I will obey what I don't understand. I'll just tell you now, for I see in Scripture, Many of us want to understand and then obey. I'm just going to tell you, most of the time you obey and then you'll understand. It will be challenging. It will be uncomfortable. And it will lead to life. And ask God for an increase in the spirit of obedience. A shift in our mind when it comes to obedience. And if you're being told areas of disobedience right now, that's okay. Let's let's repent. It's okay. But let's repent. Jesus looked at a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And he said, I didn't come to condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go walk the path you're supposed to walk. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you and to set you free. So go and sin no more. Live a life of obedience. So let's repent of our disobedience. Let's just keep repenting. And let's ask God to be a change in us, a power in us to live as we should. Father, we love you. We need to increase in our love. And our love needs to be seen not just in our emotions, not just in our thoughts, but in our actions. We want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to love you and the world to see that we love you through obedience. So we grab hold of this word again. And we refuse to connect obedience with oppression. You do not come to oppress us. You came to give us life. You didn't come to subjugate us. You came to offer us abundance. 
And give us grace to not just obey, but a heart that just longs to run after everything you have for us. We're going to need power from you to do that. Would you grant it to us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.